Section three of Fancies versus Fads. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Fancies versus Fads by G. K. Chesterton. Section three Hamlet and the Psychoanalyst this morning for a long stretch of hours before breakfast and even as it were merging into breakfast and almost overlapping breakfast i was engaged in scientific researches in the great new department of psychoanalysis every journalist knows by this time that psychoanalysis largely depends on the study of dreams but in order to study our dreams it is necessary to dream and in order to dream it is necessary to sleep so while others threw away the golden hours in lighter and less learned occupations while ignorant and superstitious peasants were already digging in their ignorant and superstitious kitchen gardens to produce their ignorant and superstitious beans and potatoes while priests were performing their pious mummeries and poets composing lyrics on listening to the skylark i myself was pioneering hundreds of years ahead of this benighted century ruthlessly and progressively probing into all the various horrible nightmares from which a happier future will take its oracles and its commandments i will not describe my dreams in detail i am not quite so ruthless a psychologist as all that and indeed it strikes me as possible that the new psychologist will be rather a bore at breakfast my dream was something about wandering in some sort of catacombs under the albert hall and it involved eating jumbles a brown flexible cake now almost gone from us like so many glories of england and also arguing with a theosophist i cannot fit this in very well with freud and his theory of suppressed impulses for i swear i never in my life suppressed the impulse to eat a jumble or to argue with a theosophist and as for wandering about in the albert hall nobody could ever have had an impulse to do that when i came down to breakfast i looked at the morning paper not as you humorously suggest at the evening paper i had not pursued my scientific studies quite so earnestly as that i looked at the morning paper as i say and found it contained a good deal about psychoanalysis indeed it explained almost everything about psychoanalysis except what it was this was naturally a thing which newspapers would present in a rather fragmentary fashion and i fitted the fragments together as best i could apparently the dreams were merely symbols and apparently symbols of something very savage and horrible which remained a secret this seems to me a highly unscientific use of the word symbol a symbol is not a disguise but rather a display 
the best expression of something that cannot otherwise be expressed eating a jumble may mean that i wish to bite off my father's nose the mother complex being strong on me but he does not seem to show much symbolic talent the albert hall may imply the murder of an uncle but it hardly makes itself very clear and we do not seem to be getting much nearer the truth by dreaming if we hide things by night more completely than we repress them by day anyhow the murdered uncle reminds me of hamlet of whom more anon at the moment i am merely remarking that my newspaper was a little vague and i was all the more relieved to open my london mercury and find an article on the subject by so able and suggestive a writer as mr j d beresford mr j d beresford practically asked himself whether he should become a psychoanalyst or continue to be a novelist it will readily be understood that he did not put it precisely in these words he would probably put psychoanalysis higher and very possibly his own fiction lower for men of genius are often innocent enough of their own genuine originality that is a form of the unconscious mind with which none of us will quarrel but i have no desire to watch a man of genius tying himself in knots and perhaps dying in agony in the attempt to be conscious of his own unconsciousness i have seen too many unfortunate skeptics thus committing suicide by self-contradiction Haeckel and his determinists in my youth bullied us all about the urgent necessity of choosing a philosophy which would prove the impossibility of choosing anything no doubt the new psychology will somehow enable us to know what we are doing about all that we do without knowing it these things come and go and pass through their phases in order from the time when they are as experimental as freudism to the time when they are as exploded as darwinism but i never can understand men allowing things so visibly fugitive to hide things that are visibly permanent like morals and religion and what is in question here the art of letters ars longa scientia brevis anyhow as has been said psychoanalysis depends in practice upon the interpretation of dreams i do not know whether making masses of people chiefly children confess their dreams would lead to a great output of literature though it would certainly lead if i know anything of human nature to a glorious output of lies there is something touching in the inhuman innocence of the psychologist who is already talking of the scientific exactitude of results reached by one particular sort of evidence that cannot conceivably be checked or tested in any way whatever but as mr bareford truly says the general notion of finding signs in dreams is as old as the world 
but even the special theory of it is older than many seem to suppose indeed it is not only old but obvious and was never discovered because it was always noticed long before the present fashion i myself who heaven knows am no psychologist remember saying that as there is truth in all popular traditions there is truth in the popular saying that dreams go by the rule of contraries that is that a man does often think at night about the very things he does not think by day but the popular saying had in it a certain virtue never found in the anti-popular sciences of our day popular superstition has one enormous element of sanity it is never serious we talk of ages like the medieval as the ages of faith but it would be quite as true a tribute to call them the ages of doubt of a healthy doubt and even a healthy derision there was always something more or less consciously grotesque about an old ghost story there was fun mixed with the fear and the yokels knew too much about turnips not occasionally to think of turnip ghosts there is no fun about psychoanalysis one yokel would say ah they do say dreams go by contraries and then the others would say ah and they would all laugh in a deep internal fashion but when mr j d beresford says that freud's theory is among scientific theories the most attractive for novelists it was a theory of sex the all but universal theme of the novel it is clear that our audience is slower and more solemn than the yokels for nobody laughs at all people seem to have lost the power of reacting to the humorous stimulus when one milkmaid dreamed of a funeral the other milkmaid said that means a wedding and then they would both giggle but when mr j d beresford says that the theory adumbrated the suggestion of a freer morality by dwelling upon the physical and spiritual necessity for the liberation of impulse the point seems somehow to be missed not a single giggle is heard in the deep and disappointing silence it seems truly strange that when a modern and brilliant artist actually provides jokes far more truly humorous than the rude jests of the yokels and the milkmaids the finer effort should meet with feebler responses it is but an example of the unnatural solemnity like an artificial vacuum in which all these modern experiments are conducted but no doubt if freud had enjoyed the opportunity of explaining his ideas in an ancient alehouse they would have met with more spontaneous applause i hope i do not seem unsympathetic with mr beresford for i not only admire his talent but i am at this moment acting in strict obedience to his theories i am i say it proudly acting as a disciple of freud 
who apparently forbids me to conceal any impulse presumably including the impulse to laugh i mean no disrespect to mr beresford but my first duty of course is to my own psychological inside and goodness knows what damage might not be done to the most delicate workings of my own mental apparatus as mr arnold bennett called it if i were to subject it to the sudden and violent strain of not smiling at the scientific theory which is attractive because it is sexual or of forcing my features into a frightful composure when i hear of the spiritual necessity for the liberation of impulse i am not quite sure how far the liberation of impulse is to be carried out in practice by its exponents in theory i do not know whether it is better to liberate the impulse to throw somebody else out of an express train in order to have the carriage to oneself all the way or what may be the penalties for repressing the native instinct to shoot mr lloyd george but obviously the greater includes the less and it would be very illogical if we were allowed to chuck out our fellow-traveller but not to chaff him or if i were permitted to shoot at mr george but not to smile at mr beresford and though i am not so serious as he is i assure him that in this i am quite as sincere as he is in that sense i do seriously regret his seriousness i do seriously think such seriousness is a very serious evil the impulse to laugh at the mention of morality as free or of sex science as attractive is one of the impulses which is already gratified by most people who have never heard of psychoanalysis and is only mortified by people like the psychoanalysts mr bareford must therefore excuse me if with a sincere desire to follow his serious argument seriously i note at the beginning a certain normal element of comedy of which critics of his school seem to be rather unconscious when he asks whether this theory of the nemesis of suppression can serve the purposes of great literary work it would seem natural at first to test it by the example of the greatest literary works and judged by this scientific test it must be admitted that our literary classics would appear to fail lady macbeth does not suffer as a sleepwalker because she has resisted the impulse to murder duncan but rather by some curious trick of thought because she has yielded to it hamlet's uncle is in a morbid frame of mind not as one would naturally expect because he had thwarted his own development by leaving his own brother alive and in possession but actually because he has triumphantly liberated himself from the morbid impulse to pour poison in his brother's ear on the theory of psychoanalysis as expounded a man ought to be haunted by the ghosts of all the men he has not murdered even if they were limited to those he has felt a vague fancy for murdering they might make a respectable crowd to follow at his heels yet shakespeare certainly seems to represent macbeth as haunted by banquo whom he removed at one blow from the light of the sun 
and from his own subconsciousness hell ought to mean the regret for lost opportunities for crime the insupportable thought of houses still standing unburned or unburgled or of wealthy uncles still walking about alive with their projecting watch-chains yet dante certainly seemed to represent it as concerned exclusively with things done and done with and not as merely the morbidly congested imagination of a thief who had not thieved and a murderer who had not murdered in short it is only too apparent that the poets and sages of the past knew very little of psychoanalysis and whether or no mr beresford can achieve great literary effects with it they managed to achieve their literary effects without it this is but a preliminary point and i touch the more serious problem in a few minutes if the fashion has not changed before then for the moment i only take the test of literary experience and of how independent of such theories have been the real masterpieces of man men are still excited over the poetic parts of poets like shakespeare and dante if they go to sleep it is over the scientific parts it is over some system of the spheres which dante thought the very latest astronomy or some argument about the humours of the body which shakespeare thought the very latest physiology i appeal to mr beresford's indestructible sense of humanity and his still undestroyed sense of humour what would have become of the work of dickens if it had been rewritten to illustrate the thesis of darwin what even of the work of mr kipling if modified to meet the theories of mr kidd believe me the proportions are as i have said art is long but science is fleeting and mr barefoot's subconsciousness though stout and brave is in danger of being not so much a muffled drum as a drum which somebody silences for ever by knocking a hole in it only to find nothing inside but there is one incidental moral in the matter that seems to me topical and rather arresting concerns the idea of punishment the psychoanalysts continue to buzz in a mysterious manner round the problem of hamlet they are especially interested in the things of which hamlet was unconscious not to mention the things of which shakespeare was unconscious it is in vain for old-fashioned rationalists like myself to point out that this is like dissecting the brain of puck or revealing the real private life of punch and judy the discussion no longer revolves round whether hamlet is mad but whether everybody is mad especially the experts investigating the madness and the curious thing about this process is that even when the critics are really subtle enough to see subtle things they are never simple enough to see self-evident things a really fine critic is reported as arguing that in hamlet the consciousness willed one thing and the subconsciousness another apparently the conscious hamlet had unreservedly embraced and even welcomed the obligation of vengeance but the shock we are told had rendered the whole subject painful and started a strange and secret aversion to the scheme it did not seem to occur to the writers that there might possibly be something slightly painful 
at the best in cutting the throat of your own uncle and the husband of your own mother there might certainly be an aversion from the act but i do not quite see why it should be an unconscious aversion it seems just possible that a man might be quite conscious of not liking such a job where he differed from the modern morality was that he believed in the possibility of disliking it and yet doing it but to follow the argument of these critics one would think that murdering the head of one's family was a sort of family festivity or family joke a gay and innocent indulgence into which the young prince would naturally have thrown himself with thoughtless exuberance were it not for the dark and secretive thoughts that had given him an unaccountable distaste for it suppose it were borne in upon one of these modern middle-class critics of my own rank and routine of life possibly through his confidence in the messages of a spiritualist seance that it was his business to go home to brompton or surbiton and stick the carving-knife into uncle william who had poisoned somebody and was beyond the reach of the law it is possible that the critic's first thought would be that it was a happy way of spending a half-holiday and that only in the critic's subconsciousness the suspicion would stir that there was something unhappy about the whole business but it seems also possible that the regret might not be confined to his subconsciousness but might swim almost to the surface of his consciousness in plain words this sort of criticism has lost the last rags of common sense hamlet requires no such subconscious explanation for he explains himself and was perhaps rather too fond of doing so he was a man to whom duty had come in a very dreadful and repulsive form and to a man not fitted for that form of duty there was a conflict but he was conscious of it from beginning to end he was not an unconscious person but a far too conscious one strangely enough this theory of subconscious repulsion in the dramatic character is itself an example of subconscious repulsion in the modern critic it is the critic who has a sort of subliminal prejudice which makes him avoid something that seems very simple to others the thing which he secretly and obscurely avoids from the start is the very simple fact of the morality in which shakespeare did believe as distinct from all the crude psychology in which he almost certainly did not believe shakespeare certainly did believe in the struggle between duty and inclination the critic instinctively avoids the admission that hamlet's was a struggle between duty and inclination and tries to substitute a struggle between consciousness and subconsciousness he gives hamlet a complex to avoid giving him a conscience but he is actually forced to talk as if it was a man's natural inclination to kill an uncle because he does not want to admit that it might be his duty to kill him he is really driven to talking as if some dark and secretive monomania alone prevented us all from killing our uncles he is driven to this because 
he will not even take seriously the simple and if you will primitive morality upon which the tragedy is built for that morality involves three moral propositions from which the whole of the morbid modern subconsciousness does really recoil as from an ugly jar of pain these principles are first that it may be our main business to do the right thing even when we detest doing it second that the right thing may involve punishing some person especially some powerful person third that the just process of punishment may take the form of fighting and killing the modern critic is prejudiced against the first principle and calls it asceticism he's prejudiced against the second principle and calls it vindictiveness he's prejudiced against the third and generally calls it militarism that it actually might be the duty of a young man to risk his own life much against his own inclination by drawing a sword and killing a tyrant that is an idea instinctively avoided by this particular mood of modern times that is why tyrants have such a good time in modern times and in order to avoid this plain and obvious meaning of war as a duty and peace as a temptation the critic has to turn the whole play upside down and seek its meaning in modern notions so remote as to be in this connection meaningless he has to make william shakespeare of stratford one of the pupils of professor freud he has to make him a champion of psychoanalysis which is like making him a champion of vaccination he has to fit hamlet's soul somehow into the classifications of freud and jung which is just as if he had to fit hamlet's father into the classifications of sir oliver lodge and sir arthur conan doyle he has to interpret the whole thing by a new morality that shakespeare had never heard of because he has an intense internal dislike of the old morality that shakespeare could not help hearing of and that morality which some of us believe to be based on a much more realistic psychology is that punishment as punishment is a perfectly healthy process not merely because it is reform but also because it is expiation what the modern world means by proposing to substitute pity for punishment is really very simple it is that the modern world dare not punish those who are punishable but only those who are pitiable it would never touch anyone so important as king claudius or kaiser william now this truth is highly topical just now the point about hamlet was that he wavered very excusably in something that had to be done and this is the point quite apart from whether we ourselves would have done it that was pointed out long ago by browning in the statue and the bust he argued that even if the motive for acting was bad the motive for not acting was worse and an action or inaction is judged by its real motive not by whether somebody else might have done the same thing from a better motive whether or no the tyrannicide of hamlet was a duty it was accepted as a duty and it was shirked as a duty 
and that is precisely true of a tyrannicide like that for which everybody clamored at the conclusion of the great war it may have been right or wrong to punish the kaiser it was certainly no more right to punish the german generals and admirals for their atrocities but even if it was wrong it was not abandoned because it was wrong it was abandoned because it was troublesome it was abandoned for all those motives weakness and mutability of mood which we associate with the name of hamlet it might be glory or ignominy to shed the blood of imperial enemies but it is certainly ignominy to shout for what you dare not shed to fall a-cursing like a common drab a scullion granted that we had no better motives than we had then or have now it would certainly have been more dignified if we had fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal the motive is the only moral test a saint might provide us with a higher motive for forgiving the warlords who butchered Friat and edith cavell but we have not forgiven the warlords we have simply forgotten the war we have not pardoned like christ we have only procrastinated like hamlet our highest motive has been laziness our commonest motive has been money in this respect indeed i must apologize to the charming and chivalrous prince of denmark for comparing him even on a single point with the princes of finance and the professional politicians of our time at least hamlet did not spare claudius solely because he hoped to get money out of him for the salaries of the players or meant to do a deal with him about wine supplied to elsinore or debts contracted at wittenberg still less was hamlet acting entirely in the interests of shylock an inhabitant of the distant city of venice doubtless hamlet was sent to england in order that he might develop further those higher motives for peace and pardon it will not be noticed in him there there the men are mad as he it is therefore very natural that men should be trying to dissolve the moral problem of hamlet into the unmoral elements of consciousness and unconsciousness the sort of duty that hamlet shirked is exactly the sort of duty that we are all shirking that of dethroning justice and vindicating truth many are now in a mood to deny that it is a duty because it is a danger this applies of course not only to international but internal and especially industrial matters capitalism was allowed to grow into a towering tyranny in england because the english were always putting off their popular revolution just as the prince of denmark put off his palace revolution they lectured the french about their love of bloody revolutions exactly as they are now lecturing the french about their love of bloody wars but the patience which suffered england to be turned into a plutocracy was not the patience of the saints it was the patience which paralyzed the noble prince of the tragedy assidia and the great refusal 
in any case the vital point is that by refusing to punish the powerful we soon lost the very idea of punishment and turned our police into a mere persecution of the poor end of chapter three recording by john brandon